when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, buddy. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Got a veteran on the podcast today. Not a veteran of the Second World War, the Korean War, but a veteran of the Falklands War. John Geddes is a remarkable man. He joined the Paras, Parachute Regiment as a teenager, one of Britain's most elite army formations. Uh, and he then served through the Falklands War, fighting at the Battle of Goose Green, which was at the time one of the largest battles, if you like, fought by the British Army since the mid-century, since the Korean and the Second World War. An entire battalion was involved, as well as support from other arms. This is a remarkable conversation that we had last summer. We were lucky enough to meet in the flesh I'm very grateful to John for coming on and talking about what at times was clearly uh, quite traumatic events from his past. Um, this was filmed. This will be going into a documentary about the Falklands War. We've got a big anniversary coming up. We're talking to other veterans. You'll have heard some of them on this podcast. Uh, there's going to be a big push on History Hit TV, talking about that remarkable conflict. Um, please check out historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix for history. We've got about, I don't know, hours left of our January sale. So please go and use the code January. That gets you a month for free, and then your second, third, and fourth month for 80% off. So crazy cheap. Uh, if you're ever thinking about it, now is the time, my friends, because that window is closing. The window is closing. If you want to come and watch a live recording of this podcast, you can do so in October. If you go to historyhit.com slash tour, you can get some tickets. Get some other people some tickets. We're going to be able to meet in groups bigger than six. We're going to be able to hug. We're able to share a pint glass. You want to do that? Probably don't. Um, and we're going to have a good time. So head over there and do that. But in the meantime, everybody, here is John Geddes. Enjoy. Had you always wanted to join the Paris? Uh, what made me join the Paris was I was an aspiring actor when I was a kid. Around about 17, 18, I went to the uh, Birmingham School of Speech and Drama. And I uh, spent a year there. And I didn't get on very well. I didn't, didn't like it very much. I met a film star called Dirk Bogard, um, who told me all about Plymouth Bridge and how he was a lieutenant on there. And uh, he said, you do, you do well in the army, young man. <laughs> and, no way. Uh, a year later, I joined Tupara. How old were you? 19. So a little bit older than some of the other guys? or was Yeah, that... slightly older. Yeah. yeah, Usually about 18. Some, some were quite a lot older, maybe mid, late 20s, some of them. And the Paris in those days had quite the reputation. Was it deserved? Was it earned? Was it the school of hard knocks? Very much so. I think it was, it was, it was hard, but it was fair. You know, it was, a, it was a fair regime. I never had any problem with it. I loved my training, loved the environment and everything it gave me. 
what were you training for? What, what were you back in the early 80s? What, what did you think the Paris might end up doing if, if ever war was to break out? Well, fighting. Primarily what paratroopers joined the army for is to fight. It's a vocation, yes, but to most people, especially the cause, it's a, it's a vocation. But paratroopers joined to fight. And the main part, infantry. They want to get their hands dirty. And did you guys think about, do you think you're an elite? When you look at other units, you thought, we're a bit tougher than that. Yeah, we, we were quite brainwashed into believing that we were an elite. Not without good cause. You know, the paras are on average a lot fitter than the rest of the infantry, therefore the rest of the army. And uh, a lot more motivated and tactically superior, as battles throughout history have proved. A lot of people who haven't served think that you guys must be terrified if you hear that war's broken out. But how did you actually feel when you heard that day that the Falklands had been invaded? Well, pretty odd, really. Most people had never heard of the Falklands. I thought, hmm, where are the Falklands? North of Scotland somewhere? Seriously. And uh, it wasn't until we, we, we got back, got briefed up, and it was pointed out on the map. So we knew where it was and how far it was and thought, you know, why are we going there? And then the, the brief continued. We'd heard the news, put two and two together and slowly but surely start the process of, of getting ready for, for potential war. Had your training prepared you for that kind of war? You must have thought we'll be fighting the Soviets in somewhere in Germany or possibly in the Scandinavia or something. Suddenly you're like, whoa, fighting someone completely different in a completely different place. Yeah, I mean, the army trained, from what I can remember, on the basis of big formations and battle groups. Power Edge were, were, were pretty flexible. We were part of 5 Airborne Brigade and uh, we prided ourselves in being able to move quickly at any hotspot in the battle zone and drop in, fill the gap. And that was the sort of indoctrination at the time. That we would pick up, drop, fill a hole, win, move up, give it back to the army, move on again somewhere else on the world stage at that time. In the days after the invasion, did you guys, were you quite hoping to see action? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The guys joined to the fight, they wanted to fight, and they, and they were looking forward. They didn't really believe it until the Sheffield got hit, to be honest. And we thought, yeah, this is serious. And then there was a, more of a, a somber mood, battle preparations, because it was still a long way from the, the sort of islands, and slowly started to prepare during the day. It wasn't a dry ship, so we had a few drinks and a few sober get-togethers within our teams and preparing for the inevitable. So the, the timings are quite quick, weren't they? So two parrot, you were told about the invasion. How quickly were you on board the ships? I mean, within days? I think it was, yeah, it was within days as far as I can remember. Do, yeah. do you remember, what's about saying goodbye to families and all that stuff? Or? Well, I was married to my first wife at the time. We were co-located in the same garrison town of Aldershot and prepared to leave. And everybody came to see us off, kissed everybody goodbye. Do you think anyone believed some of us might not be coming back at that stage? We talked about it a lot. It, it sounds sort of bizarre now, but we, we talked about different scenarios. We've been introduced to their fighting capability on the ship. Um, We've been introduced to their esprit de corps. A lot of them were, were conscripts as we know, and um, we, just, we just kind of figured it out in our heads. Yes, this time we, we will be outnumbered, but we're superior soldiers. I said to the guys, uh, the NCOs particularly, I said, I think we're going to lose 
maybe maybe 30 guys, but we're going to win, without a doubt. There's no doubt about winning. And individually, did you all think, yeah, we might lose 30 guys, but it won't be me, it'll be someone else? Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's never going to be you, yeah. So the journey down, long time on a ship. It was a long time. How did yeah. you keep the fitness up? We, we worked hard. I mean, we, I was part of uh, a patrol company and uh, the patrol companies aspire to be a lot fitter than the rest of the battalion. They, they, they worked in small teams. There were reconnaissance on the island, the eyes and ears of the battalion. So we had to be pretty fit to sort of move around at great speed. And we did the, the normal battalion training, but we were in the bilge. That's where we slept, in the bilge. And during the lockdown exercises, where if the ship was struck, we had a few flights to run upstairs, and nine times out of ten, we'd run out of steam, and the deck would be locked down. Anybody underneath, tough, you know? The great need was with the most amount of men. And if you were caught downstairs when the ship hit, you didn't go quick enough, then uh, tough. Thought they'd close the watertight doors and... Yeah, that, that happened several times. So this, this is where we trained. We trained up and down the stairs with, uh, with our webbing on, with our rifles, up and down the stairs, and, and try to keep as fit as possible to get off the boat in the event of a strike, <laughs> more than to fight. Yeah, <laughs> self-preservation. Mm. And how do you while away the time? I mean, how long? I mean, it was weeks at sea, was it? Yeah, it was, it was something like three weeks. Yeah. You know, to get down there. It was a long, long time. And were you getting news? So you were hearing things like Sheffield had been sunk and... Uh, yeah, we got, we got regular, regular news. They didn't cloud anything. You know, there was no, no stories. Uh, usually come over the BBC World Service, which we tuned into all, the, all, all of the time. We got messages from the captain, from the boat. He was the first to hear. Um, the commanders on the, on, on the ship, you know, they were the first to hear. And it got disseminated pretty quick. So it'd be a couple, well, there were a couple of battalions on the ship. It must have been absolutely packed with soldiers. It was two para. That was it. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't have any Royal Marines to fight with or anything like that? No, we did on the way back. I heard about that. It was three para. Was it three para? Yeah, okay. on the way back. Yeah. And we did fight. We had a horrendous fight on the, on the boat. <laughs> oh, you and three para? And three para, yeah. God. Two para and three para had a horrendous fight on the way back. But, but, um. Bar clearing brawl. Uh, yeah, it was basically a bar clearing brawl. The, the, you know, it was obviously on, um, on, on the battalion smoker or the regiment smoker, really, with two battalions on a boat. And stories started flying. Who were the best? <laughs> you know, who was wounded? Criticizing bad infantry drills with the battalions. Who lost more? And it just deteriorated from there. The, uh, the empty cans started going over two-way, then the full cans, and then everything erupted into a fight. The, uh, the RSM closed all the doors, so nobody went over the side and proceeded uh, with his staff to try and calm the place down. <laughs> um, they got beaten out of the mess, and they waited until, until things had calmed down, then roamed the decks with rather large sticks. Uh, the RSM and his staff beating anybody that was in the corridor back into their uh, bunks, <laughs> you know. But not a word said the next day is, you know, that's the, the airborne way. Uh, when was the first time, going back to the start of the campaign, when was the first time you had a sense we are now in a, in a combat zone? It was still like a big exercise. It was just a feeling of a big exercise. I mean, the, the only experience, combat experience, most of it had was places like uh, Northern Ireland. 
and we just had a heavy tour in South Elmar uh, where we lost uh, 20, 25 guys. You know, there was, a, there was a lot of attrition on both sides with the Provos and uh, two para. You know, the big ambush at Warren Point. That was pretty devastating for, for the battalion. And not long after, we're, uh, we're getting together for, for, for another battle. So, yeah, it's worth saying you'd been in combat before. You'd been in Northern Ireland. You'd, you'd fired yeah. your rifle. You'd... Yes, yes. Yeah. That's what I mean. We'd had limited combat experience, uh, mostly on counter-terrorist work in, in the field and a lot on the streets. And as we landed, it was still sort of feels like we're on an exercise because we were supposed to get a signal as we landed at night by the SBS who were trekking inland to give us a, a red light or a green light. Yeah, the green light meaning the, the landing wasn't going to be opposed. A red light meaning it was going to be opposed by the Argentinians. In other words, they would do the reconnaissance on um, Argentinian positions and the beach landing at Blue Beach too. But it, it didn't happen. They didn't get there in time. So we went out there cold. The CEO said, let's go for it. That's it. So you were in proper landing craft, perhaps trying, yeah. ready to fight your way ashore. With Marines, yeah. D-Day style. Yeah, D-Day style. As soon as the, 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 the front gate went down, everybody's off the boat as fast as they could. Many people ended up in, in water up to here. And this is, you know, the Falklands, it's the winter, it's, it's zero temperature <laughs> straight away. And people are getting sort of cold injuries straight away. I grabbed a guy, one of my calls signed by the, 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 the weapon, dragged him aboard with his LMG. And, uh, you know, you can't go any further until you sort people out. If you had to fight your way off the beach, then that's, that's, that's a different story. But when you have to move on, people have to change their socks, get ready, get ready to happen very quickly. We'd all be well practiced in, in our admin, and we set off. It was only daybreak when the, when the Argentinian Air Force started coming in with their airstrikes. It became apparent, yep, this is definitely a war zone. I think it's a psychological thing of, of trying to kid yourself that, yeah, maybe not, maybe not. Oh, yeah, definitely it is. So that first night ashore, you're, you're just, you're bivvying. And I guess your, your job is to protect that beachhead now so that everything else can start landing? Well, we were there as, you know, as a staging point to carry on. That wasn't our primary duty to, to defend the beach ahead. It was a case of digging in, establishing a, a hard routine and making ourselves safe, getting ourselves as safe as possible. Dig down about six inches and uh, you hit water. So we spent much of the time digging up sods of earth and peat and building up our defences. Some people had uh, rocky outcrops where, where they could take cover in the event of any attacks, which, which were frequent. And how do you stay dry like that? Tell her, as a, as a stupid civilian, how do you stay dry? Don't stay dry. You don't? There is no staying dry. You stay comfortable. We had you know, as many socks as we could carry. I mean, but to be honest, ammunition took priority over administrative gear that we'd been prepped for um, a European war, you know, the boot polish, the, the brushes, the roll mats, the everything else, it just didn't exist. It's, it's ammunition, ammunition, ammunition. And socks. And socks. Ammunition, socks, and rations, that was it, and water. And so the attacks coming in, they're air attacks. 
Did these little sangers you were building provide any protection? Uh, not really, but they weren't, they, weren't, they weren't gunning for us. They were gunning for the, for the, for the ships. So we were a sideshow to what was going on when, when uh, the aircraft started coming in. And you must have seen, because there was a lot of British ships lost. Yeah, I mean, was, by the time we were on Sussex Mountains, um, uh, everybody else was landing by then and digging in uh, further down the valley. And the aircraft were coming in on an on a hourly basis. Very brave pilots, to be honest. They were at an advantage in that there was no big time defences, air defences set up. There was just no time uh, or resources at the time. So all they had to put up with was small arms fire, which, you know, when two battalions are lying on their backs and... Uh, and you all having a pop at so, yeah, Skyhawks yeah. coming through. They've got, go. they've, they've got to fly through a wall of lead. It doesn't matter what, how fast you're going, you're going to hit that wall of lead at some point. And some aircraft were shot down. And do you remember seeing Antelope and those kind of ships get hit? Was that, did you see yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Devastating. Yeah. That must have um, felt like real war. If you're watching. Yeah, we could, it, was, it was just a panoramic view of the, of the valley. Um, San Carlos Bay being hit, the ships getting hit by the Argentinian Air Force. You know, um, they were getting hit by all kinds of aircraft. Superintendents, Skyhawk. Did you feel you were contributing? You felt like you could fire your rifle up in the air and it might... Well, we took, took down several Skyhawk. So uh, I think, uh, you know, that was attributed to small arms fire. Um, They're coming in low. Yeah maybe 500 feet to, to, to get across our position and then head down into the valley to release their bombs. They had to get to a certain height. And then how quickly before you guys were told to crack on and effectively start taking the fight to the enemy on the land? It was within days, we, we, um, the patrol platoon, or patrol companies, two platoons acting independently on separate fronts. My uh, platoon were tasked with leading the way. Were you going south at that point or? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I do committed to reconnaissance. And what rank were you at this time? Corporal. Right. We were split down into patrols, so we had a patrol each. So you're in a leadership position now? Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yeah. And it was a case of finding out information. Looking, how many, looking, men, looking for how many men on your patrol? Four. You know, there's different form of patrols, different aspect of the battle area, uh, doing a joint reconnaissance activity and then reporting back to the platoon leader and uh, Captain Farrer. And we just decide amongst ourselves what was relevant, what wasn't relevant, pass it on to the CO. And so you're moving south from San Carlos Water to, to Goose Green at this stage, are you? Yeah. And your patrol, you're out in front, you're tip of the spear, you're the most landward British serviceman in the yeah. expeditionary force at this point. Apart from special forces, yeah. We went out there in light order. In other words, just, just webbing and... Uh, we called them Chinese fighting suits. They were roll up. You know, we didn't we didn't take any bedding, no sleeping bags, no no roll mats, zip up trousers, zip up jacket, sort of a duvet type trousers, very thin jacket, but it was insulation, and we used to zip that up at night and go to sleep, damp, you know, and then roll it up in the morning, squeeze it out, and put it away. We had uh, windproof trousers and smocks. So that blew dry pretty quick. The only thing that suffered was, was, was feet a lot of the time with a lot of people. So we went out in light order with the intention of coming back. We, we came back once. We went out God knows how far and we were called back to the battalion lines 
to have another briefing from the CO with another task for the patrol platoon. So we went out in light order again. This time we got ordered while we were on the ground, head for Goose Green and carry a reconnaissance of the forward battle area there. How do you make contact with the enemy at that point? Aircraft, only aircraft. They could obviously see us, maybe uh, 12, 24, maybe 24 guys for, you know, eight patrols. Pilots are going to see something. They can, uh, you know, that's the way they're trained. They would pick you up walking during the day. Uh, whether they were attacking us, we don't know. But they were certainly overhead, sticking down a burst and driving on. And so you're heading towards Goose Green. What have you, you been told to expect there? Well, one of the primary tasks was meet up with uh, D Squadron, who were pulling back from Goose Green. Of the SAS? Yeah, that was my old squadron. So uh, they were the guys that did the uh, Pebble Island attack. They were the first contact with other soldiers um, on the ground, apart from aircraft. And, you know, we knew half of them from the battalion. There was, you know, maybe six, seven people from Tupar at the time and shook hands. They gave us all the information that they had on the forward recce areas and uh, said goodbye. One thing I've got to mention is an aircraft that, that flew, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was a Skyhawk. It uh, you know, dropped its ordnance around us, carried on into the distance, and a plume of smoke came up from the ground and took out the aircraft. Whether it was a, a Pucara or a, a Skyhawk escapes me now. And uh, the aircraft went down, and it was one of the guys in 16 Troop, which was part of uh, D Squadron, who brought it down with the Stinger. So that was the first aircraft brought down with the Stinger. Impressive. So what did they tell you about Goose Green? From the intelligence briefs, we knew it was a small settlement. Uh, we weren't aware of the amount of soldiers at Goose Green. We weren't aware of the, the dug-in positions around Darwin and Goose Green. That's what we had to find out. All the information we had was from the regiment, you know. The information that came back from, they did, you know, Day Squadron did a diversionary attack and pulled back. That was pretty ineffective. They pulled back. G Squadron had done their reconnaissance and the int to us from the brigade, from the, from the battalion HQ was the SAS have said they've wrecked Goose Green and there isn't a lot of people at Goose Green and a decent parachute regiment rifle company could take it out. One company? One company. So how many people in a company? On the ground, Bainers, probably about 50, depending on the strength of the different battalions. So that was just the hearsay that came back. And that was the only confirmed intelligence we had on, on Goose Green. That's why we had the patrol, our own, you know, the, the CO had his own patrol elements who fed back real information from the ground. So you get to Goose Green, and it turns out to be a completely different scene. Yeah, yeah. We did our reconnaissance uh, tasks at night, once the battalion had caught up with us. And we'd get to a certain position, and the battalion would follow up. And we were tasked with different positions on the battle area, on the start line, to recce our part of the start line. So that's what we did. My four-man group went forward and did one particular start, of the, and they, they, uh, everybody else did that. And as a patrol, were you going to take part in the fighting as well? No, that wasn't our task at that time. Our task was reconnaissance. If we got into a, into a contact or a fight, then we would have fight our way out. 
because we, we, we didn't have the, the resources to start assaulting positions, that would have been stupid. So basically what we did was at night, crawling forward, we got really close to Argentinian positions, close enough to count guns, machine guns, close enough to count men in their trenches. Some of them were asleep on their machine guns with their helmets on in the mist and the cold and the night. And uh, that was the same case up and down the start line for different reports from different, different uh, patrols. So and we marked them out as much as we could on paper with a pencil, fed that back to platoon commanders so they could shake out their sections ready to take on a position. So it would have become clear to headquarters of your battalion that there were a lot of Argentines there in, in well dug in positions. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But the decision was made to go for it anyway. Yeah, that was, that was already done. We were compromised anyway. The BBC announced that two para was amassed on start points at Goose Green, ready to attack. So the only protection we had was night. But having said that, the Argentinians were still not very alert and they wouldn't have got that information anyway. Where were you the following day when the battle took place? Or when did the battle start? Um, we went back to the start line and then the command was given, move forward. So the, the rifle section started moving forward. They'd already fixed bayonets. We didn't have any helmets, we had black bobble hats. They had helmets on and uh, their full gear, uh, weapon, and they advanced to contact. Advanced until they could start getting shot at, you know, and you got something to shoot at. And there was a couple of occasions where there was Argentinians killed before the battle started, you know. And um, all of a sudden, all hell erupted. The Argentinians started firing from the machine gun posts. And on average, they had probably at least two GPMGs and two 5.0 Brownings. And they were stood on, on, on boxes and boxes and boxes of ammunition, thousands of ammunition. They were well equipped. And that's a, a ferocious sort of thing to go against when you're an infantry battalion without support. So it went loud, as we call it. The flares went up, give everybody some light. The tracer was going both ways like a video game, and we advanced from the back. Our job was done. So we spent a lot of the, a lot of the time keeping our head down and uh, moving up a tactical bound behind. So we were there as reserve. So if a, if a platoon got badly mauled, then we would be called up as a, as a reserve to continue fighting. You're listening to History Hit with Dan Snow. I'm talking to John Geddes, veteran of the Falklands War. More after this. 
Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You've spent decades now in war zones. Have you ever experienced anything like Goose Green? Uh, No. In a word, you know, it's a pretty unique battle to be involved in. And I think the causes have changed as well. Causes are a lot more political now. And back then it was British passport holders stranded on an island being accosted by another nation. And it was pretty cut and dry. And the other difference was the lack of support. I think places like Afghan, Iraq, uh, a lot of air support, a lot of uh, ground support, and sometimes a lot less political support. But in the Falklands, everybody was behind you, and everybody rose to the occasion and, and fought on. But on that, that battlefield was like, there haven't been any, other, any more occasions like that, have there, since then, when a, a whole battalion will go into attack, bayonets fixed against yeah. an enemy in fixed positions. Yeah. No. No, not really, not, not, since, not since the Second World War, really, or Korea. And what did the battle look like when the sun came up? Um, you know, our first contact, our first um, introduction to what was left on the battlefield was, was the Gorse Gully, where A Company had advanced up a very small valley, I think you might have been there, and they were virtually ambushed from different positions. And uh, it was just a continuation. They, they, you know, they, they were they were again advanced into contact. They were, you know, they were still advanced into contact through one position onto another, and they got severely bogged down in what's known as the Ghost Gully, with devastating results. Um, the battalion attack one almost got wiped out, which are all the, you know, a lot of senior officers, good officers, and that's where the CO was killed. I've got to ask you about. Colonel H, your commanding officer, it's become a bit of a controversy, you know, should he have been there? He was leading from the front, he got killed. What are your thoughts when you heard the CO had been killed? Um, hard to say. It's, it's quite disheartening, really. He was, he was a well-liked CO by, by the men. He wasn't a popular commander with his officers, but with the men, he was, he, he was, he was, he was into fitness he was into tactics, he was a go-getter, he liked to fight, he wanted to fight. He let the guys get away with murder back in the battalion. You know, for, for instance, at Warren Point, we used to wear these nylon denim pants, and they were, we called them denims. They were terrible, they never, they never fit, they were all too skinny, and they never fit right. And it was a big cause of, of, of burns in explosions. Something like nylon, poly whatever, you introduce 
some flame to it, some heat, and it turns the napalm basically and, and keeps on burning, in other words. And that's where, you know, a lot, a lot of guys suffered, suffered there that weren't killed. They were, they were badly burned. He got rid of those and we went back to cotton, OG green trousers. And they're very casual, you know, you can hardly get a crease in them. And we loved that. He wasn't one for um, highly polished boots. He, he liked dubbing on our boots, you know, so they're never shiny. And that really wound, wound some people up who liked shiny boots. And fitness, fitness, fitness. He gripped the uh, HQ company, who were now and again a bit porky. And uh, at the end of the day, they're, you know, the bedding stores, if they're clerks, they're still paratroopers. They start as paratroopers. And he wanted them to be fighting fit. So they didn't like him for that. But most, most of the, the fighting troops in the battalion, they liked him. He was hard on his officers, very hard. And I think for, for obvious reasons, you know, you have to be hard. You give him command, you take command, and that's the kind of officer he was. He did what he did. It was an emotional response from a lot of his uh, officers getting killed in the Gorse Gully. It was his choice to send them forward to take a better look at the, the battle against NCOs, against men's advice. If you go up there, go around there, go over, you're going to get killed. You know, this was, this was to the to the TAC, uh, the, the TAC HQ guys. And H kept pushing them, get up, I want information. And horrendously, um, a lot of them got killed very quickly. The adjutant was killed, who was a particularly good friend of, of the CO. And I believe it was an emotion, in, in that kind of emotional response that he came down out of, out of the Gorse Gully, ran around into the next spur up the hill and took on a machine gun, which, you know, there, there'd already, already been a section. A friend of mine, uh, Monster Adams, he'd been up there and they were beaten back because there was an interlocking overlapping fire from both sides of the valley. Didn't have the resources to take on both of them at the time. You know, wait to get mortars up. And um, he'd, he'd been shot in the back. Half of his uh, section had been chewed up. You know, it wasn't the place to go at that time. But again, he did what he did. Charged up the hill, took on the, the gun trench, and got shot from the other side by another machine gun. You know, there's no doubt what he did and why he did it. But for me, it was an emotional decision, not a rational one. And you saw that ground in the morning, did you, as the light came up? And yeah, it was, it was just smoke and ruin because the white phosphorus uh, in the mortar rounds had eventually set fire to the brush, the gorse. So that was smouldering away. A lot of smoke, a lot of dead bodies on both sides. And the smoking ruin of, of battle machine guns, military paraphernalia, uh, helmets, and pretty grim sight. But the Knights fighting convinced the Argentinians they, they didn't want any more. They, they surrendered. No, no, it went on from there. Everybody gunned up again and, and carried on. During the uh, day? Or? Advancing to contact during yeah, the day. Yeah. yeah. So there were several other skirmishes with different companies. So I always wonder with Goose so is it just a matter of reducing a strong point, strong point by strong point? You're just, you know, company attacks, mortars, machine gun fire suppressing you know, one particular Argentinian position after another and just edging forward like that? You know, it doesn't matter how much of a tactical bent you put on it, it all ends up the two men fighting together at the end of the day. You know, there was the different companies were fighting on different fronts, on different positions. A company was bogged down in this in the position. Other companies, company commanders were D Company 
Our commander was in a good position to flank that position and the SEAL wouldn't have it, you know. A company got themselves into the shit, they'll get themselves out of the shit. So they were on the beach side and they were doing nothing, D company. They'd had a fierce battle and they'd won and they were chilling out and, and offering up their, their services. B company were tied up in a position called Booker House. They were outgunned from a, a long way, a long distance by 5-0 Browning machine guns. As soon as the SEAL was killed, B Company broke out the Milan and started hitting the gun trenches from 2,000 metres and then rolled them up pretty quickly. The SEAL didn't want to release the Milan. He wanted to keep them for Goose Green, where there was supposedly uh, panod tanks there. Because Milan is a shoulder-mounted anti-tank weapon. It's an anti-tank weapon. No, no, it's ground-mounted. Ground ground okay, yeah. okay. So we started hitting these, hitting these uh, B Company uh, the commander was X-22 anyway. That may, may have influenced his decisions. And he started hitting the trenches from almost 2,000 metres. And they rolled them up pretty quickly. So D Company was still quiet at that time. And they offered their services. They were turned down. But it was rolled up pretty quickly after the SEAL got killed. Another corporal, just on a flank, was crawling up the entrance beyond the, where the SEAL attacked with his section. Uh, Pig Abel's, and he stood up with a 66 from point-blank range into the machine gun that had killed the CO. This is, um, I don't know how long it was. It wasn't long after, because that process was in operation before the CO got killed. They were looking at a, a flanking attack. Um, Pig stood up with the 66 rocket launcher, covered by the guys, and hit that trench. And he had a smock full of holes. He got highly decorated, he really did well. So the section took over that position and then turned on the position ahead. And from there, that gave A Company, or what was left of A Company, the opportunity to fight their way out of the Gorse Gully. And the white flags started coming up pretty soon after that. At the end of that battle, when the Argentines surrendered, you, you must have been shot. You weren't expecting that many prisoners to emerge from their positions, were you? Well, that, that, was, that was later on. Sort of several skirmishes later. But were you skirmishing yourself at this point, your guys? Yeah, we had a position um, inadvertently ended up on the left flank of D Company. And there was a position called the schoolhouse. So we identified that as, a, as an enemy position. We fixed bayonets um, there and started fire manoeuvring our way down into the valley. D Company were on, on the right flank. They were pushing through hard, fighting hard for their positions, which were the, the major positions. We were, we were just on a flank in support and got into a, a little re-entrance, ready to assault the schoolhouse. It was a small building and D Company had gone to ground. We handed all our uh, LMG machine guns and 57 grenade launchers, handed all those to D Company via the, the link man. There was a, a captain who'd asked for all this gear and we ran ahead in light order just for the SLRs, grenades, and assaulted the building from, from a flank. So that ended up with six of us actually assaulting the building. Grenades, white foss, and uh, horrendous firepower from D Company hammering the position. So it was, a, it was a bit of a cakewalk for us to grenade the building. Then the building started taking incoming fire from the in-depth positions, 
the Argentinian positions, they saw it's, it's done and they started hammering that position. So we then got pinned down as a couple of other patrols had rocked up on the left and the right. We were the furthest forward of the battalion by then. Everybody gone to ground, everybody was running out of ammunition. We were running out of ammunition. I had a, a nice uh, assault major who, who had joined us, a hardcore paratrooper from the past. We were taking some serious income in. And I said, Jed, we've got to go. And uh, he said, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. And I looked around. I said, we're not going back. We're just going sideways. <laughs> so that was the only way I could get him out of the fight. You know, so we, we came down reverse slope to the right, took over some old Argentine slit trenches, threw dead bodies out, threw guns out, and occupied those positions and, and waited and got pinned down for the rest of the day. And we were only able to withdraw when night came. What's going through your head when you're pinned down? <laughs> it was fun. I can't put it any other, any other, we were laughing. We were laughing, it was fun. We were superbly confident. You know, we looked at behind us at the damage the battalion had done. We were proud. We'd got away with it so far. My call sign was complete. We'd taken a few casualties. They'd been, they'd been taken back to San Carlos. And we, we were elated. We were taking photographs, you know. Some of those are on the internet. Pinned down at, at, at Goose Green. And, uh, and we thought, you know, eventually, hang on. What do we do? What are we going to do now? And eventually the daylight started to recede, uh, dusk, and we literally crawled out of the positions backwards under the reverse slope. Darkness came in very quickly, and we walked back to A Company's position at the gully. Picking up a casualty on the way, the machine gunner from D Company, who was riddled. Luckily, not one single major organ was hit, but we put on eight dressings, eight child dressings. You shot eight times. We plugged eight holes. You know, I remember this distinct number. And he had ran. He was telling us all about it. We, we threw him on a poncho and carried him out on a poncho. Asked him what happened. We sort of roughly remembered the incident. We, we, we were a bit further forward. A Picaro had come in earlier on in the battle, uh, machine gun and sort of the battalion, and uh, dropped a canister of uh, napalm that dropped behind D Company lines would have taken out the whole company, a huge part of the company, if it had uh, landed on the position. But it didn't, it landed beyond the position. And he was getting stretched off, and the Picara came in, guns are blazing, and the guys dropped the stretcher. They ran one way into cover. He picked himself up and his drip that was shoved up behind and ran another 50 meters into a ditch. And that's where we found him. We tactically walked back because we didn't know what we were going to come across. It was pitch black. We only had a compass bearing back to the position. And we heard this, and all guns were over and under the ditch. And, uh, no, 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 that's me, it's me. He, he shouted out his name and we picked him up, patched him up, carried him out. When did the Argentinians surrender? Was it the next day then? Yeah, there was a, a plan launched that night. Keeble had decided to offer a surrender, you know, offer Goose Green command to surrender. So at one point, uh, me and a friend of mine, Dick Walsh, another corporal, were constructing a white flag from anything white we could amass, ready to take a prisoner down and offer up this bit of paper from the new CO. 
uh, they changed their mind. They decided to send an officer who was uh, a Spanish speaker and a couple of prisoners to show good faith with a white flag down at the position the next day. And the letter, more or less, read, the battalion is, they've got the full complement of ammunition. They're being joined by a, a battalion of Marines. Mortars are resupplied, the ammunition is resupplied, the artillery is resupplied, and airstrikes are booked for 0800 today. If you don't surrender, Goose Green will be bombarded and you will be responsible. Was any of that true? No, none of it. The artillery was still bogged in. The aircraft couldn't fly because of the, couldn't lift off because of the uh, mist on the aircraft carriers. I don't know what Royal Marines about either. You wouldn't have liked it if there had been. No, no. I think there was the platoon in reserve way back. I think they'd, they'd spend most of the time um, stretcher bearing to get wounded out, which was a good job. And no mortars, completely out, outside of mortars. We were down to half magazines of ammunition. So 50 of us, representatives from the different battalions, basically a, a fighting patrol of 50, walked in to take the surrender. And 14, 1500 came out. The only thing they insisted on was they wanted a ceremonial surrender in a quarter angle, throw the weapons into the middle. You know, the officers would hand over swords to uh, the other officers, but there was a couple of corporals that got there first. You managed to get a sword? I didn't, I didn't. But a good friend of mine, uh, Tom Harley, managed to get a, a sword, an officer's sword. They still got it today, I believe. When was the last time you slept? During the battle, never. There was catnaps, catnaps. You know, every time you stopped, you closed your eyes, somebody woke you up, carried on. But, you know, no, no hardcore sleep to speak of. I've spoken to a couple other veterans of Goose Green who have struggled with the things that they saw there. I mean, is that, is that something that you've found difficult for the rest of your life? Uh, not, not really. I remember one sort of emotional breakdown, but it was, it was more euphoric. And it was about six or eight weeks after the battle. There was a day in unofficial, Remembrance Day. Everybody was downtown, the wounded were well on their way to, to recovery. There was a guy down from three par that had lost his arm from the elbow down. One of our guys lost his leg. He was shuffling around. We were going from house to house in the married quarters, drinking. We were downtown, drinking uh, in all, all of the bars, all of the pubs. And it was at the, end of, at the end of that day, I decided to call my sister, told her about the battle, and uh, I got a little emotional. That's the only time I've really sort of had a bit of a breakdown. So I said goodbye to my sister, sat down in the, in the phone box and just had a sob. And it was a bit of an emotional release, to be honest, you know. During, during the battle, you have to stay completely indifferent when you're fighting a battle, completely indifferent. Even to seeing your own, your own people killed, completely is just not real. You know, that's, that's the attitude most people take that get away with sort of PTSD and uh, I had that breakdown there was, a, there was an old lady opened the door on the on the uh, phone box and said have you have you just come back and I said yeah I said come and have a cup of tea walked into her house big pot of tea Kit Kats or whatever and she was a war veteran herself she was a service woman for herself from the from the war and came away just really proud really happy for that little bit of interaction. And two years later, I joined the SAS. So 
I was I, I was keen to, to to get going on to bigger and better things. So Goose Green wasn't the end of the Falklands for you guys. You had to keep going, didn't you? Yeah, pretty much. It was uh, it was a, a bay called Fitzroy. The battalion was dug in. There was a troop ship came in, full of Welsh guards and munitions, heavy heavy munitions. Obviously, re- re- reinforce reinforce us for a start and uh, complement everybody else. And these were guys we, we'd worked with before. We worked with them in Northern Ireland. We worked with them in Berlin a couple of years before that. So we knew, we knew a lot of them, you know. We didn't know that at the time. We didn't know who was on there. And there was a little bit of activity there. You know, we were all dug in. We walked up onto an embankment where we set up a range and started firing off foreign weapons, basically, Argentinian weapons, with my team. We were firing off their grenade launchers. It's in the middle of nowhere, out in the, in the, in the far distance. We are firing, firing pistols. We are firing 45 pistols. We are firing uh, FN automatic rifles. Just having a fun, fun afternoon. And we could see the ship in the far distance, below. And the bay extended all the way around to another bay on, on the other side. An air raid warning came through on the radio. Yeah, it's incoming. So uh, got on the ground, just rifles in the air. Futile, a couple of rifles, but it's just instinctive for self-protection. A flight of Skyhawk came in, all three, did one circuit, second circuit, went straight up the rear end of the, the ship. They were unloading gear, ammunition at the time, and the whole thing went up. We didn't even know there was, there was a battalion of soldiers on there until they started jumping overboard, and then the mayhem really started. We were in the water, in, in lifeboats, dragging lifeboats onto the shore. We were picking people up out of the water, throwing them back in, into the uh, lifeboats. And the ones that survived suffered from really, really bad burns. And they lost, I think, about 50, 50 guys uh, on the ship. The CEO was warned to get off the boat. He chose not to. Um, he's got to live with that for the rest of his life. That was a, a, a day's work in itself, helping out the Welsh Guards. They got ferried back in the uh, uh, Chinooks that had been able to get in. Took them away and um, we had a briefing that night from the uh, CO. They said, guys, just a bit of an update. The uh, Welsh Guards uh, have been sent back to San Carlos. You know, there's no way they can continue on as Point Battalion. And I'm afraid we're it. We're Point Battalion for Wireless Ridge. So that was our second taste of action. As a battalion. Our wireless was quite different, wasn't it? You had a bit more support. Yeah, a lot of support. We had the scimitar tanks, the artillery was up, we had ships in the bay hammering Wireless Ridge, hammering uh, another position called Sapper Hill, which was going to be the, the big daddy battle for all, all concerned. We were on the uh, foothills of Wireless Ridge. Three Para had just completed fighting on Longdon. The Marines had their two sisters on the right side of um, Longdon, and we sat there preparing to fight. Was it like going in for the second time? Is it almost worse than for the first? Well, again, we were a patrol company once we'd done our reconnaissance, and uh, same kind of reconnaissance. Where are they? How many are they? Which positions their guns are in? Which direction? Strengths, morale, the kind of morale are they in? What kind of condition we think they're in? Uh, fed all that back and the rifle companies formed up and swept over the ridge, stormed the ridge. 
that night and we were in reserve at that time as a patrol company. I, I talked to other people, so there was a, it seemed like there was a huge amount of firepower that night. It was a huge bit awesome. amount of firepower. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's just shocks me to this day, the amount of firepower that went down on both sides, especially machine guns. It was a, it was a hell of a machine gun war. GPMGs and uh, 5-0 Brownings going both ways. And uh, surprised that, that uh, so many more weren't killed. I mean, Law of Average just says half of us at least should have been killed. But it was nowhere, nowhere near that. There's a lot of that. metal flying around. Yeah. And the amount of lead going down both ways. Unfortunately, the casualties we did, the company did have, were an own goal brought in by an incompetent artillery sergeant. He brought it down on his own position. What do you remember about the formal surrender? What was the feeling like? Well, as we, as we, as we walked off, off the ridge, we, we could see the flags starting to fly. We knew it was a surrender. We were told to keep advancing. The uh, three para started breaking their positions and coming in onto the ridge and, and then onward to Stanley. And we were the first people into Stanley. Two para were the first, which was uh, a good achievement. The formal surrender, we, we had no part of it. We just wanted to get warm. We just wanted to get our How feet dry. How did you dry. get warm? Well, well, you know, the good-hearted Falkland Islanders gave up their homes by the mo most part. And um, sheep sheds, cattle sheds. We were lucky. My call sign was in a small cottage on the outskirts of Stanley, you know. Tea, soup provided by the Falkland Islanders. And uh, we just wanted to get warm, we just wanted to get dry, some semblance of warm. We, we, you know, we didn't care about any ceremonies, we didn't give two hoots about the surrender. It was done. The fight was over. We'd survived and, and uh, we were happy. When you look back, are you glad that you took part in that conflict? Oh, super, super glad. You know, if I was to die tomorrow, I'd die with a smile. You know, when you fought through machine gun positions with, with 18, 19 year olds, fighting like lions next to you, and they've gone down and died. The rest is gravy. Did you think about the politics much when you're that age? Not really, no. Brexit politicised me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another story. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Amazing. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.